and welcome to episode number 89 of Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. It's my absolute pleasure to bring you this episode, a great conversation that I had with Selena Espiritu and Rodney Barnes. They are the creative dynamo, the dynamic duo behind Quincredible, a wonderful story of an amazing young man facing a challenge I think we can all relate to. I think it's a beautiful opportunity to hear their creative process, but as I get closer to milestones like episode 90 and episode number 100, the risks will always increase, and for this episode, we lost Selena about 12 minutes into the recording. However, she is such a cool person that she was willing to submit to me her answers so that I could try and copy and paste them into this episode. You'll have to let me know how I did, but... Without any further delay, let's get started with our Quincredible conversation. Why delay the inevitable? Let's simply get right down to it. This is a new episode of Storytelling with Seth, and I am very lucky to be here today with the uh, amazing creative beings who have brought together Quincredible, who put it on the page, who made it a delight for me to read, both for the story and the art. And I'm going to give them both an opportunity to uh, say hello and introduce themselves. I'm actually going to start with uh, Selena first. Selena, hello and welcome. Uh, hi, thanks for having me. I'm Selena Espiritu, and I'm the artist for Quincredible, and I'm from the Philippines. Wonderful. And Rodney, thank you for yes, coming on Yes, I am. You're welcome. I'm the author of uh, Quincredible, and I'm here in lovely Los Angeles. Wonderful. I'm, uh, I'm up in San Leandro, just outside of San Francisco and Oakland, little area of the Bay Area that has uh, become my home. And in the attempt to have great lighting at this time of day, I've sequestered into what I hope is the quietest room. It's always an adventure, depending on the time of day. Uh, it's always when I least expect it that someone suddenly starts using a weed whacker. So we'll see if that pops up. But uh, what I want to talk to you today about is this story of Quinn, Quinn Credible. And I'm going to be honest, I've got a lot of fun questions. I'm looking forward to hearing your answers on it. And if at any point you feel like you're the one who's, uh, I have to give an answer, just pop in there. I might call on one, but if you're like, ah, if I want to just step in there, I'm okay with that. I think it always makes for a bit of fun. I love the passion. And I would love for both of you, if you could, in your own words, describe for me, uh, who is Quinn? And what is the story that he has to tell in the pages of the book that we're talking about, Quinn Credible? You want to go first, Elena? Yeah, sure. Actually, when, when Quinn was introduced to me, I think uh, his trope is one of my favorites of superheroes where... He's not really that impressive in terms of what he can do. He, he can't fly. He can't shoot lasers out of his fingers. He's, you know, he's just a kid and he's just smart and he has one advantage and it's that he can't really get hurt. But I like characters like him who uh, they're not reliant on, he doesn't really rely on himself. He, he, over the course of the story, he's had to go around, gain allies. And my, one of my favorite parts of his character is the relationships that he has in the books. 
So whenever I get the script and I read it, I really try to. Selena, I think you froze up on us just a little bit. I didn't know if that was me. Focus on each other because I feel like that's that's just my favorite. Wonderful. Uh, for me, you know, I look at Queen Credible as uh, the average kid who dreams. Um, he gets a modicum of the thing that he dreams about, not exactly the, you know, the full-on brunt of the dream, but an aspect of it. And I always wanted to write Quinn in such a way that um, spoke to, as he's developing as a person, he can better utilize the power that he has. Um, and to what Selena was saying as well, I tried to build a lot of his strength as a hero really comes uh, out of the nature of the relationships he has with his parents and his friends. And I wanted to emphasize the strength of community and the need that no matter what your power is, that it's difficult to be an island, that you need strong relationships in order to build uh, a quality life in general, but certainly for the missions, for lack of a better word, that Quinn is on, um, it's all determined on what help you know, whether it's from Glow, whether it's from Brittany, whether it's from his parents, you know, there's a place that he can go to for strength, the strength that he doesn't have as a superhero that actually complements the thing that he does that is superhero-ish as far as power is concerned. So I just wanted to, to try to create a bridge between um, kids who um, don't necessarily have like a fancy thing or may see themselves as not having a degree, the confidence that they would like to have and to understand that in building that confidence, you really bring out whatever strengths you have as a person. I enjoy that approach because it, it's a reminder of all the things that we might possess, but if there's something we want that someone else has or can do, and we think to ourselves, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could be just like that? And it causes us to overlook the parts of ourselves that you know we have already at our disposal, uh, mm -hmm. strengths, uh, opportunities. Uh, one of the things that, that always catches my attention is I'm, I'm a little over six foot, maybe six foot three. And I get a lot of people that are like, wow, is it as great to be tall as I think it is? And I go, that depends. Have you ever hit your head? And they sort of pause and look at me and I go, really? Certain restaurants, the lamps that hang over that table, I guarantee you, I've hit that. And it's not as fun as it sounds. And well, <laughs> as a human being who's six, eight, um, I can certainly relate to your issue. <laughs> So there you go. <laughs> and I, I, I'm certain that, you know, there's, there's certain attributes that we would both uh, see someone with and, and both consider like, hey, that's a quality I'd like to have. And someone else is going to look at us and go, but you have height. How yes. is it? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Now, I, I love that idea because it's a great reminder for readers and uh, for the development of the character, you know, Quinn, that, that we get a chance. But I'm also curious because when I was reading over the, uh, the introduction and just looking at who you both were, I, I was caught by the fact that also there was a creator uh, by the name of Isaac Reed who was also involved with Queen Credible. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I believe that there was another form of Queen Credible that um, came out before our iteration of Queen Credible, I think a couple of years before us. And um, I guess the Lion Forge folks wanted to reboot it or come at it from a different angle or, you know, whatever their motivations were. But um, when they approached me about writing it, 
all they said was a kid that's invulnerable. Um, okay. That was it. But yes, it, sometimes I see art, and I think there was another issue or two that came out before our run started. Um, some of the names are different. Some of the characters are different. You know, it's almost, um, I won't say a different world, but there are elements that are different than what Selena and I have done. I understand. And, and I was curious about that because it leads really naturally into my uh, next question, which is how did you both come to work on this project? Uh, I was curious, just uh, usually there's always great details about how it is that two people end up working on something together. <laughs> uh, Selena? Uh, oh, well, it sort of just happened because originally like, Incredible was the first time I had worked with Iron Forge only for us. We working with another publisher and when the person who was handling me and my previous project moved to Lion Forge. I was moved with them, <laughs> and then as we as we continued working, the proposal: Hey, do you want to work on this? Song? You know, coming of age vibes. They were superhero genre, and I said, Yeah. I think you might have froze up on us one more time. Yeah, sure, it's okay. okay. It's great dramatic and to pause. And then they <laughs> said that uh, Rod knows the name from because he also likes blowing. I think we got you back now. Yes. Um, well, for me, uh, I was working on um, uh, the show Runaways, uh, Marvel's Runaways for Hulu. Mm -hmm. And um, I got a call from one of the editors at Lion Forge who. Hello. Hi, Selena. Is your audio video sort of delaying you with our conversation at all? Because I want to make sure I'm allowing time that that's happening. We must be frozen on her side, I guess. Potentially. Because she just texted us. He said, I believe I've reached the limits. Oh, no. Selena, are we going to lose you? Is the phone or the connection not allowing you to continue, Selena? Give a thumbs up or a thumbs down if you can hear me. Okay. Um, Rodney, I'm happy to continue. Selena, yeah, I'm happy to, yeah, I'm happy to keep going. I'm good. Yeah, Selena, I don't want to leave you out. Um, I can do a follow-up with you if you think you have a chance to uh, find a better arrangement for connecting, and I could do a second conversation and try and blend the two together or figure – okay, I've got to yeah, yeah. keep going. No problem. Selena, good to thank see you, for you Selena. Um, it was good to meet you for a moment. And please send me an email and I will follow up with you after I'm done talking with Rodney. And, and hopefully we can create some sort of reconciliation, whatever it might be.
either that or if you can do hand signals throughout the conversation. That could get really fun too. <laughs> okay, Selena. It's okay. Thank you. Thank you. We'll uh, we'll connect after I get off the call with Rodney. Sound good? It's great seeing Thankfully. you. Thanks, Selena. Send a quick message. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, everyone. So sometimes it happens. We I'm I'm gonna we're gonna lose Selena for this one, but uh, Rodney and I are gonna continue talking about story, and hopefully I get a chance to follow up with Selena later. Thanks, Selena. Really appreciate it. We're going to make this finish and work out however it ends up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Send a quick message. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, everyone. So sometimes it happens. We, I'm, I'm going to, we're going to lose Selena for this one, but uh, Rodney and I are going to continue talking about story and hopefully I get a chance to follow up with Selena later. Thanks, Selena. Really appreciate it. We're going to make this finish and work out however it ends up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that seems like a really awesome personality to work yes. with as far as a collaborator. She's No, she's fantastic. Energy. I mean, I can say um, it's funny because the first arc, we just communicated through email and we didn't communicate a lot. I would turn in the scripts and then um, when Lion Forge approved them, uh, they would just send them to her and then Art would come back and, you know, we talk a little bit about edits and notes and thoughts that I had, but her work was so um, pristine, for lack of a better word. Um, there wasn't really a whole lot that I had to say. It's like she captured the spirit of New Orleans and she also added like a multicultural quality that I really didn't uh, add to the scripts, but she did it so flawlessly that it felt organic to the world of New Orleans without... Um, without it feeling forced. Um, I think she really created a, a great uh, tone. I can't imagine another artist coming in and like doing another arc with that artist and not Selena, because, you know, I think we've sort of created a, um, a tone that is uh, someone would have to do a different type of story than the type of storytelling we're telling, I think. I would agree. I mean, I really loved what you were capturing in the story. Um, and one of the things that I was curious about, uh, actually, just one of the many, I'm curious about a lot when I read this story. Uh, as I mentioned, it started with you know, the idea of Isaac Reed, the creator. I'm, I'm always curious when there's a concept that, that's been taken in a new direction. So it sounds like uh, Quinn existed in some form prior to. But you were mentioning uh, before we started getting into some distortion, I just want to touch back on that a bit with uh, Selena's uh, video that you were currently, or at the time, you had been working on Marvel's Runaways. Yeah, right? I was working on Marvel's Runaways, and um, I got a call from one of the um, one of the Lion Forge editors, and um, they had read some of my other work uh, for another publisher, and dug that, and was aware of what Runaways uh, was, and said, you know, we have this young teen of color, and uh, this is what he does. What do you think? Would you like to come on and do it? And for me, you know, I always look at work begets work, you know, the ability to uh, continue to hone the craft. And I'm relatively new to comics in regards to a lot of other veterans who've been doing it for a long time. And, you know, comics, like every other medium of uh, writing, sort of has its own rules and you've got to work through even done a, even though I've done a lot of television and film, I hadn't done a lot of comics. And so being able to uh, 
hone the the rhythm of uh, words with art and you know today's reader versus when I was heavy into comic books when I was younger. Mm-hmm. It's a completely generation. I'm writing to a YA audience. Um, so a lot of things that were different, but it was a challenge, and I was up to the challenge. And um, you know, once I saw they showed me some of the concept art that Selena had done early in. And it was intimidating because it was so good. It's like, okay, I've got to live up to this artist. Uh, And um, so when I started thinking about uh, Quinn, um, you know, I was just thinking about myself as a kid and, you know, I don't want to step on any questions that you, uh, that you may have coming, but I was, um, I thought about my insecurities as a kid. I thought about a lot of um, books that I enjoyed when I was a kid that didn't necessarily have characters of color in them. Mm-hmm. And I also thought about the limitations of having a, a superhero who only had one power um, and, you know, was limited by the fact that, you know, we're not in an ultra, a super violent story that we're telling. Um, so it almost has to play like uh, the Hardy Boys mysteries. Um he, but there's, he has this power that will get him out of a jam or will, you know, there's a limitation that's there that the Hardy Boys didn't have. So it was really more about story and finding um, adventures that Quinn was passionate about, things that he was, whether it was his community, whether it was about some social issue, whether it was something that was happening to a friend or someone that he cared about. He had to be emotionally connected to the thing in order for in my imagination for not only the reader to be connected to it, but to have something that was as interesting as his ability to be invulnerable, you know, so that there was an engaging story that was kind of walking with, and at some point he's going to get run over by a car and be okay, or fall off a building or something bad is going to happen to this kid. And it was funny because other writers who were fans of the book started to, um, write suggestions into me of creative ways that I can test his invulnerability. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's just, um, it's an honor to be able to sort of harken back to my childhood for lack of a better place and um, speak to youth and speak to innocence and and speak to a lot of things and themes that I don't think we have in the world right now, or at least enough of. Hi, I'm Selena Espiritu. I'm from the Philippines and I am the artist of Quincredible. I handle everything from the layouts to the pencils to the final inks of the project. So Quinn is personally my favorite kind of protagonist. He's he's mundane, so sort of, but he's skilled and he's smart. And there was a lot of emphasis put on his character that it, it takes more than, than brawn to solve a problem. So he's a character who's very cerebral. He thinks about what he's going to do, though he might rush into things. And uh, that, that's, that's the kind of character I like to bring to life because uh, I feel like there's more to see in yourself of Quinn because he's... You know, he's just a normal kid, and he's his character is very much the champion of what is morally right, and he likes to be the champion of those who don't necessarily have the skills that he has because of his enhancement. 
but and he also knows that or he's also very much aware that there are limits to what he can do so an important part of his character is also realizing that hey you can't always do things on your own so uh, sometimes it's all right to rely on allies rely on your friends for uh, you know there's strength in numbers and there's strength when you share your convictions with other people who also have the same passions as you do and he learns that you're more likely to get something done if you do it together. I think that's a great place to start. Uh, I think that you're you know, introducing one of the most important things that I, I enjoyed about Quinn and that we mentioned earlier, which is that there's an inability for him to recognize just how special his gift is. And that, you know, goes so well with other insecurities that he has about who he is, the environment he's in, his relationship to it, and what he would like to do compared to what he uh, believes he can actually do. And I, I think that's an interesting predicament because it's one that, uh, you know, I remember uh, when I was a kid, people would ask me, hey, you play sports? And I was like, yeah, I play soccer. And they're like, what else you play? I was like, that's it. You know, I could go on the playground with my friends and play other sports, but the thing that I cared about, that was, that was my one thing. And unless it was connected to it or in some way it was in that sort of field of vision, I couldn't see beyond that. I had no recognition in my mind that running on a soccer field could equate to a track or, you know, other experience or that maybe I could explore more. But I, I, I do know that my, you know, own insecurities kept me aware of the fact that this is what I thought I was. And based on what I thought I was, that was the most I was willing to explore or try or risk or even challenge. Well, we shared that in common because, you know, when we were talking earlier about height, there was a natural, there was a natural like belief that I should be playing basketball. Mm -hmm. And I liked the game. I enjoyed watching it on TV and I enjoyed playing it like you would play on the playground. But I had a lot of friends who, they were committed to the game. Like if it was snowing, they would shovel the playground to play. And they were like deeply committed to this game. I was deeply committed to comic books. You know, I was deeply committed to horror films and those I'm old enough to where I um, used to have these uh, monster sets where you could make Frankenstein or Dracula and paint them oh, and, yeah. and do different I things. Aurora, <laughs> I think was the company that made them. And I had the Star Trek, um, the Enterprise and different iterations of it and, you know, Klingons and stuff. I was that kid. And, you know, I had friends laughing at me because I'd be out on my step at 13, 14 years old with Evil Knievel, trying to make him flip perfectly with the uh, with his motorcycle. So I wasn't the prototypical, you know, 6'8 kid who just loved sports, who was doing his thing. I liked it, liked them, but didn't love them to the point where um, I wasn't going to read a big stack of comic books. If you gave me an option between one and the other, the comic books were always going to win. And so I think in coming back to Quinn with that, um, you know, he loves superheroes as well. And he dreams of being one. And like you said before, you know, he gets a power, but his power doesn't um, kind of vibe with his imagination of what he thinks a superhero should be. Superheroes fly, they do this, they do that. You know, they're almost like rock stars. And for him, he just doesn't get hurt. And it makes, I think I put in the first uh, story arc that, uh, it makes it easier to deal with bullies because they can beat him up and, you know, he won't be hurt too bad. Um, 
but it doesn't necessarily help him become more popular or it doesn't help him become a better student or, you know, be celebrated in the way that I think kids imagine being validated outside of themselves. But once he begins to validate himself within himself, and it's an intrinsic motivation that uh, is starting to come out, he starts to feel stronger about himself. And once that connection is made, that self-worth is made through doing and the confidence grows from actually doing something rather than wishing or dreaming about the thing, um, he gets better at it. And the power and his ability to wield it come closer. You know, I don't know if it'll ever get to a place where it's ideal. He's just like James Bond, but, you know, indestructible. But as far as his ability to um, solve a case or to, uh, you know, figure out a problem, I think, um, you know, he'll get better and better as he gets better, as he evolves as a person. He had an aptitude prior to uh, gaining his ability. In fact, it's before we even know that he's indestructible. What we know is that he has this sense of protecting his family and he wants to design a home security system, which I might have tried to get some rubber bands and some sharp objects or maybe like pull some stuff together in my mind or dig a hole in the ground and hope someone falls in it. But I never had that sort of <laughs> yes. ability to apply, you know, his knowledge. So I, I love that he comes into this with an intellect before he gains yes. any ability. And yes. that that's actually, I think, uh, an additional superpower he seems to at times overlook. And to what you said, too, uh, it's intellect, but it's also a desire to do something with it that's mm -hmm. altruistic, you know, that's good. It's like he has a... Um, a desire to help and protect and to make sure his family's okay. And, you know, those, uh, the character stuff is already there. It's just adding one more element to it uh, that takes him slightly beyond where his friends and contemporaries are. And, you know, I, I think being able to empathize with Quinn and what he wants really is what idealistically, I think we all aspire to as people is just to be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. I agree. Uh, what I love about Quinn is how, um, and thank you for taking the time with each of these answers, man. I'm, I'm loving everything oh, you're saying. So, so it's, it's totally like, I, I'm, I'm loving it because I'm like, okay, that's, that's close to what I was saying, but so, so perfectly different that, you know, it's just from another perspective that allows me to see it just as if I'm looking around the corner or if I just tell my head the right way. And one of the things that also caught me about uh, Quinn is he, he's got this genuine quality to him. He's got that desire that you mentioned. He's got an earnest uh, approach to a lot of what he's trying to do. And what I, what struck me the most is that that was something I loved in a character, Billy Batson, who was the Shazam. Shazam, and, Yes. And recently when they rewrote him for part of the, uh, what was the new 52, Billy went from being the sweet orphan who was just a good kid to being a little darker, a little nastier, uh, a, a little bit angrier. And no, I understand. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry <laughs> to cut you off, but you You're hit fine, a thing. Um, there's a book, uh, one of my favorite books is Salem's Lot, uh, Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Mm. And when they did the TV miniseries way back when, I think in the late 70s or early 80s, it was just an innocent kid. And when they did the, the TNT remake, um, not too, too long ago, I think in the early 2000s, they made the kid like bad, 
You know, it was mm-hmm. like he didn't have that what the quality you're talking about with Billy Batson, that innocence and purity is almost like they wanted a, you know, like he was an edgy, that that edgy character sort of spoke to today's lack of innocence. Um, and that edge was going to make him more interesting in some way. But that was all. It just hit me that what you were talking about. No, that's perfect. Uh, you saw the timer probably pop up. Uh, apparently, recently, they've been cracking down on the uh, recording with Zoom. So if we get cut off in any way, are you okay with us? I'm okay. Yes, I'm okay. Yeah, right back I'm, okay, I'm we'll fine. get that yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so what I loved is that you didn't take that direction. That That for me, I felt that Quinn was this great character who didn't have to be... I mean, essentially, everyone deals with their insecurities in their own way. We all mm-hmm. have ways of coping. We develop them at, at a relatively young age. And I understood that for the writer who wanted to make Billy a nasty version of Billy Batson, that this was what they felt was another direction of coping that a young orphan might take. And that this was a, an opportunity to show how this kind of character could still become a hero. And, and that's, uh, don't get me wrong, as far as like exploring story, I understand that approach. But what I loved was that that wasn't the necessity in telling the story of Quinn, that you could tell the story of Quinn and also allow him to maintain that all those wonderful qualities that I enjoy because I see them sometimes in kids with their parents, my nephew. I, I'll enjoy that fact that I wonder, wow, are they going to keep it? Will there ever be a point when they lose that? Because some kids, you'll see them at 17, 18, and you think to yourself, wow, they've still got all of those great qualities I remember from when they were younger. Something didn't change them. They didn't have to lose that in order to cope with any insecurities they might feel or or something along those lines? For me, it was about, um, because I'm a parent and, you know, I love the relationship that I have with my children. um, I look at Quinn as a reflection of his parents in that relationship, that because they love him in a very specific way, it's still discipline and still being a parent. It's all of those things, but it's gentle enough and it's empathetic enough that it feels like um, it makes the person that's receiving it, even if it's a child, want to be a better person because that's what they're receiving. It, it's like the love is so genuine and pure and gentle that within that gentleness is a degree of vulnerability that translates to a desire to cultivate character and to be a better person. Um, So often uh, heroes, superheroes uh, are born out of tragedy. You know, they're born out of um, something bad happens. Uh, Uncle Ben dies and I didn't stop the guy that was going past him. And now I feel like I have to do a thing or my planet blew up and they sent me someplace else or I was coming out of a theater and I saw my parents die and I'm angry now and I wanna be vengeance. And I wanted to come from a different energy. I wanted to come from an energy to say that you don't necessarily need trauma in that specific way, that you can empathize or connect with other people hurting. Um, And that empathy can come from home and that empathy can come from a good place and that you can use that as 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 a connector to what other people are going through and wanting to be a positive um, contributor to the world. Um, I hadn't seen that a lot. And, you know, writing a lot of television, television, those stories are mostly based on conflict, whether it's comedy, drama, whatever. Uh, Very rarely is it from a place that is uh, pure and good. 
And so, and certainly with characters of color, you know, it's always, uh, when you talk about the hood and the drugs and the guns and, you know, any movie that's about that area typically heightens, you know, so, to some cases, lesser degree, it could be true or whatever, but it heightens that idea that there's this, um, it's always based on trauma. It's always based on something negative. And I wanted to say that everywhere, you know, uh, every place on earth that is difficult, there's still some goodness that's there. There are good people that are there. And um, it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, traumatic in order to want to be good. Mm. Now, I'm curious, it, this wasn't a question even I wrote down, but I'm listening and I'm thinking about what you've already told me. And I was wondering, because you were working on Marvel's Runaways and because you have worked on other projects, is this something that you had tried to do previously before getting the chance to work with Quinn, where you could have a character become someone, but not born of tragedy or misfortune or? I mean, I, I think not so much the specific idea. I've always been attracted to the idea of writing to a YA audience. And within that, I wanted it to be something, again, going back to the Hardy Boys, you know, the Hardy Boys didn't necessarily have guns pointed at them or drugs or, you know, that type of stuff. They just had an adventure that they were going on. And, you know, Scooby-Doo had, you know, you basically knew in the first act, you met the person that they were going to see in the end and pull the mask off. But it was still something that was innocent. There was some innocence that was there. So you're looking at just story. You're not necessarily getting into all of the noise around the story, which is often what you see with, um, you know, stories that are told about, you know, difficult circumstances. You know, you have to add in all of those other elements. And I'm not saying those elements don't apply. You know, Quinn runs into them, a couple, a couple of them, you know, during the first story arc. But I didn't want it to be so heavy and so... Um, bogged down with a lot of that stuff because there are a lot of folks that do that and they do it incredibly well. So if I'm going to try to do something that's a little bit different, um, you know, allow Quinn to be happy, allow Quinn to smile, allow Quinn to have a good time with his parents, with his friends, the girl next door. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things in there that I think aren't necessarily new, but I wanted to uh, serve them up in such a way that they felt like this, there was still some innocence in the world and there was still some, some, some things that were good and while you're still having an adventure at the same time. I'm curious because you mentioned, you know, that you uh, started out with comics, that, you know, you enjoyed uh, collecting and reading. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm curious what your relationship was with comics beforehand because uh, I'm wondering then how, how it is that you were able to use any of those influences, inspirations for what you were working on. And I'm also curious about the, uh, you know, what it means to tell this story through comics, because I think there's a lot of importance there. Uh, comics, I'm guessing comics were chosen to tell this story because uh, the sort of superhero coming of age story, I think it benefits a lot from being in a comic form because there's it's there's a lot you can convey in a single panel about the character like there's a lot you like writing can tell you like the inner thoughts and stuff and you can also do that in comics but i feel like 
for a lot of people it's there's a lot of impact when you you just see when you just see the scene and you see the characters expressions or at least that's how I've always viewed comics and why I, I love them so much and I love drawing characters so much because I love drawing their expressions and I I love drawing people interact and that that's always what affected me the most whenever I read comics it's you know the words are there but I feel like it should be able to tell the story without the words as well As for my history with comics, professionally I have been doing comics since 2016, not a very long time, I suppose. I started right as I was out of my college education, actually before that. I, I had to put it off because of my thesis. But since 2016, I have been working on comics professionally. I was the artist of a series called Brave Chef Brianna with the illustrious Sam Sykes. I was lucky enough to be able to work with him. I did a few smaller one-shots, one-offs, did a few covers, and that was all before I was brought into Queen Credible. And I've been working with Rodney and the team ever since, uh, aside from my other projects here and there. Personally, I've always loved comics because that's the sphere of storytelling that I found that I could contribute to because I love telling stories, I love reading stories, but I have absolutely no talent to write any of them. Writing technical manuals are more my thing. I don't really know how to portray a character with words, I only really know how to do it. Uh, with my hand drawing them and that's why storyboarding was also something I really wanted to do in the past but you know they're adjacent things so kudos to the writers we have like Rodney and Sam and all the other creatives out there who are able to to, to tell stories through their writing I'm happy enough just receiving these these stories as scripts and you know, being able to to realize the the characters and the story on paper that's that that was already a, a major major accomplishment for me, and uh, my best work is done when somebody gives me instructions when when somebody else has done the heavy lifting of storytelling and I simply have to put it to paper. Well, my mother was a school teacher and. Uh, this was before the days of, you know, big computers like the one that I'm sitting in front of me right now. So when she did her lesson plan, she would go to the public library. And um, since it was just me and her, she would take me. And they used to have this area where they had the kid books, the Dr. Mm -hmm. Seuss and Curious George and all of that stuff. But under those books in this card, this raggedy cardboard box were comic books. And I knew exactly where they were. And I would immediately go there. <laughs> The hell with the cat in the hat. I didn't care about Ping the Duck or none of them. I cared about my comic books. And, you know, it, it was gold in those boxes. Um, mm. And I would sit there all day and just read. And it felt so good. Um, sometimes I didn't understand the stories. I mean, I'm like talking about being a little, little kid. Um, and I haven't been little in a long time. <laughs> and um you know but uh the the imagery and when i did understand the story it was great but um 
Neil Adams was my favorite uh, comic book artist of all time. And I didn't know this as a kid. I just knew I loved those covers and I loved the artwork. And it was something about that style that just jumped out to me. And I, I just loved it. And there was a period of time when um, it seemed like every DC cover, he was drawing damn near every DC cover. And um, I just loved it. And they, they were in this box. And so uh, it just struck me and, and he had a tone uh, the Denny O'Neill books, uh, Batman mm. and Green Lantern and all of that stuff, they had a tone that was adventure. It was like James Bond. It was like, um, you know, they just did stuff that was different than the Adam West, Burt Ward, Batman that I saw, the Bam Powell, you know, that. It was like this other thing that just felt like adventure. And um, that was, that just sort of, that got into me, Um in a way that was like, it infected me. I loved it. And um, that was where the love, the love connection was made. And, you know, through the years, uh, as comic books evolved, I, as I was growing up, it went from that to then the Frank Miller Daredevils and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then, of course, the Burn, the Burn Claremont uh, X-Men run and that type of stuff. Then all of a sudden, you know, Alan Moore punched me in the face with Swamp Thing and um, mm. something different happened. Go ahead and put that Swamp Thing back up because I uh, had, that was right when it was cutting out. And I have so yes. many friends who we can talk for hours about that book right there. So <laughs> Saga of the Swamp Thing, I remember it's this weird thing that I have in life. Uh, I'm going to call it luck um, in some things, in some areas. In comic books, that I would say in that area. Uh, and books and literature in general. I remember as a as a kid, kid, um, when I used to have those paperback spiral, like this comic book rack I had behind me, but they had paperback books on them, reaching up and getting Stephen King's Carrie. And that was another, that started this other thing where <laughs> to this day, I'm buying these books from this guy and uh, falling in love, um, you know, and falling in love with... Um, you know, a particular thing. And Alan Moore hit me with Swamp Thing, Miracle Man, uh, you know, Watchmen, V for Vendetta, and then uh, introducing me to Neil Gaiman uh, and uh, with Miracle Man, when he took over for Miracle Man, it just became, um, it, it just became, as a kid and an only child, comic books were like my friend, a friend that I could depend on that would always be there. And no matter how bad I felt, no matter how tough a period of time I was going through, to this day, uh, comic books have been like, now it's more of collecting, more so than reading because I don't have as much time, even though every Wednesday, like an attic, I will go and buy a stack of comic books and read three. And I've got like um, a whole box full of new books that I haven't read. Not because I don't want to, but because life has a tendency to um, interrupt uh, my goals. Uh, of reading books but um there was just certain uh when comics became like literature and there were certain books that just spoke to me in a very specific way and what was lacking was you know for me characters of color who had the same level of um how can i say this um just the same level of layers to how stories were told um, if it was a character of color, his color became a part of the story. 
um, or certain pathologies in American society became part of the story. And, and again, I don't want to say that those things don't exist or that those characters shouldn't be interested in those things. But, you know, Batman didn't have to worry about that stuff. Batman just had to worry about the Joker or Ra's al Ghul or whoever he was fighting at the time. And, you know, Daredevil had to deal with being blind and emotionally connecting to whatever he was dealing with um, in the world. And, you know, I wanted to, to, when I started to write comics, I wanted to not ignore, you know, because we do live in a world that's problematic, but I didn't want that the problematic nature of the world to uh, supersede fun uh, or to supersede imagination or to, again, bog down a story so much that we're no longer enjoying ourselves, but we're sort of getting medicine about, you know, my judgment of what the world should be or how people should be, or basically regurgitating what you can see on CNN, you know, anytime you want to turn the TV on. And so, uh, again, not saying that those things don't exist or not downplaying them, but sometimes being able to speak to that feeling that I had when I would read the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew mysteries and just lose myself in a story that didn't necessarily reflect the reality of the world that I was in, but sort of um, fired my imagination to um, another place. You know, I had a friend that used to say the largest nation is the imagination. And I would sort of, um, anytime I'm writing a book or books, I always try to take the reader in a place where they don't expect they're about to go. Um, not as a trick, not like, uh, you know, the M. Night Shyamalan movies where in the end it's going to be this twist and you know what's coming. <laughs> or, you know, or Twilight Zone where you know the thing that you've been watching, something different is going to come in the end. Not like that, but more a narrative um stretching the narrative boundaries to a place where um, um, it's just, you know, it's just not, it's a surprise as far as um, you didn't expect this character to go to that place. I understand. I, I love that history. I love that breakdown. Comics for me were a great discovery. Uh, they were something that I, I didn't actually get the chance to experience mostly because I grew up in a very religious house and, and there was uh, some, negative attitudes from different uh, people in that community, in that church community, who, who felt that, you know, there were things that were too wrong about comics for anything to be right. But once I finally got the chance to get my hand on a couple books, it was like, I, I was hooked. The first one was free. Actually, the first two, they were gifts from a friend of mine on my birthday in the uh, eighth grade. And I remember from that moment on, it was like, okay, I've reread both of these books. Like, 30, 40 times. How do I get more? And then he took me to his comic shop and then they found one in my town and, and, and a relationship was formed. But then high school girls, Life. money, money really became yeah. the biggest problem for me for a long time. And it, it was always interesting to me that if I was in a bad place, if there was a relationship that wasn't working out, I knew I could get down to either the library or Barnes and Nobles where they had those big couches and you could just go and find a stack of graphic novels, pull them off the shelf. And no one was going to bug me because everybody else was doing the same thing. And I remember even being in college in times where it was like, man, I'm, I'm down and I need something that just makes me feel better about what's going on. I'd find one of those places and I could just know exactly where that spot was. 
you know, like you were saying, and I love that your story was, you know, when you were so young that you just knew where that cardboard box was, you could be lined to it every time. And, and I love the, uh, the examples you have, Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill, those are legendary names. Those are mm-hmm. creators who did imagine, you know, who imagined wonderful things and then brought them to life. And then, you know, following that trajectory, uh, I think, uh, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, I, I think his Watchmen, I mean, I was a DC fan. So the killing joke was always something that just struck a chord and, uh, and his, his, uh, his, his mantra, you know, I'm doing this to destroy the medium. Like I I'm really just here to, to mess with you. Like I'm really pushing your buttons and there was a, a brilliance to it. And then following up with Neil Gaiman, what I love is that you've, you've brought me into uh, an opportunity where I get a chance to ask a question that I was curious about when I was reading about this, um, when I was reading this story, and I, I want to connect them after I ask it. Are you familiar with the, uh, the milestone line that was mm-hmm. DC's release in the 90s? I am. That, that series, that whole line exploded for me. I'll never forget bringing home my first issue of Hardware. And, and like looking at it and there being a playing card and reading the letter to the editor or from the editor that was like, don't leave that card in the plastic. You got to take that out and put it in the spokes of your bike and you got to ride around your neighborhood. <laughs> and there was a, a vibrancy and a wonder. It was such a disappointment when, when we had that for a little while in comics and then it was gone. But I remember just this uh, great opportunity. And, and when I was reading about the elements because you introduce a whole community of superheroes through Quinn. He's our sort of like, mm-hmm. he's our guide. He introduces us to his community and you, you set the story in new Orleans. You've set it uh, fully aware of the fact that Katrina is not a distant memory, that it's very recent, that the impact is still being felt, but then there's also something else that's occurred known as the event. And that was always something that I loved about the concept behind milestone. You've got Dakota city, You've got something that happens that no one can really describe and is part of the key mystery about why all these super-powered enhanced beings, as they're called in Quincredible, suddenly arrive. And, and what it means, because not all of them were good before they got powers. And even those who were are navigating a world where things are changing. New people are arriving all the time. And I, I, I love that you're nodding like, yeah, I know about Milestone. And I was just curious if there was any echoes, resonance, any connection to the fact that both are telling the stories about an event that's affecting the community and the people that are coming out of it. Well, the, the Lion Forge folks already had the event in their books. Um, that was the foundation, I think, of the entire Catalyst Prime universe, um, was that event for virtually all of their heroes. But I wanted to use it in a very specific way that it wasn't just about the heroes, but it was also about trauma to the community. So connecting it to Katrina made it to me feel more real and not so um, superhero-y, for lack of a better word, that on an emotional level it affected the regular folk who weren't part of the superhero pantheon, that, you know, at at every level folks were affected. Um, Because I've got this hero that sort of straddles both worlds. He's more, he's less superhero than he is kid. You know, he's more regular kid then, you know, the invulnerable parts are sort of like, you know, I've always likened it to date myself even more. Kind of like Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno and the Incredible Hulk. You knew two to two and a half times Bill Bixby's eyes were going to turn and he was going to turn into the Hulk on the TV show. 
It's like the $6 million man to date myself even further. You knew he was going to do a bionic thing at some point, whether it was jump and he was going to look, he was going to do a thing. That's sort of how Quincredible works. At some point, you're going to see the invulnerable stuff and it's going to come when the action comes. But the stuff that's human still needs to be connected to something that matters. So his actual origin, you know, the idea of who he is, um, is connected to a traumatic event for a lot of people. It destroyed the community after Katrina destroyed the community and they had to rebuild. And, you know, his parents had to rebuild along, um, along with everybody else. And so it's another way of sort of galvanizing the idea of community. So from that trauma, Quinn emotionally connects to it in such a way that saying, these people have been through so much. We've all been through so much. So when something bad enters, uh, a bad guy, an antagonist comes into the, the on the scene, um, he's there to care a little bit more so because he remembers the trauma that everybody faced not too long ago. Hmm. So it was more of connecting the event to his humanity and psychology than it was to necessarily just the hero part of it. I understand. I just loved when I was reading that and suddenly, I mean, recently DC's announced they're bringing back Milestone and yeah. there's a lot of excitement to be had. There's a lot of characters I want to experience again and uh, pulled out some old issues recently and just sort of like thumbed through and just sort of chuckled to myself like, man, because the other thing that, that unless you own those books, you didn't know, but there was a whole unique color process that was going on at that time. It, it, it changed the way things looked. It changed the texture of the paper. It, it seemed like a, an area of exploration. So there was a lot of excitement involved with that as well. And, and uh, when I was thinking about, when I was reading through this and thinking about the event, why is this triggering something for me? It's something, oh, right. And milestone and my brain just sort of lit on fire. So thank you. Cause now I can sort of just quiet that part of my brain that's there been bugging go. me. Like you got to ask that question, man. You yeah. got to, cause I even put it in my question. I'm like, Hey, is this close? <laughs> Am I like even close to uh... the milestone line of comics? I am not familiar with it. Unfortunately, I'm actually my, my pool of comics that I read is actually very small, despite being in the industry that I am. So yes, Quinn inhabits a, a universe of superheroes uh, that's already established. It's been long established before uh, Quinn is a relatively new kid in the, this universe. And his story is primarily, Quinn's story is primarily contained within the community and space that he, in, he inhabits. So not really a lot of uh, the, the grandiose world ending uh, problems, sort of, that he encounters. It's, it's pretty contained, but you do get to see this universe peripherally through Quinn's eyes. You, you sort of learn about how he is able to integrate himself with the, the greater superhero universe of his story as he does it. So you and Quinn are, as you read, you learn about it as he does. Which is great because I feel like that makes him, uh, that makes the immersion a little more sympathetic for the reader because Quinn, if you're into superhero comic books and you're into superheroes and that genre, uh, you, you'll see yourself in Quinn. He's just a, you know, he's just a kid. 
he he thinks it's cool when a guy can fly and a girl can shoot lasers out of her hands. So if you find that cool, you'll you're in the same boat as Quinn, essentially. I believe there's uh, a scene in this volume, I'm not sure what issue anymore, it's been a while, but there's a scene that encapsulates this, like, oh my god, I, a superhero in real life? Uh, I think how Quinn was portrayed was, was how anybody would would react in that situation, so I'm excited for everyone to see it too. Another element that comes from Okay, so the timeline. I won't lie. I'm very much embroiled in the production side of things. It takes a while to produce comics, so that's that's basically my day to day. I get up, do some chores, and then I work on the comic for the rest of the day. So I'm very focused on on every panel, every page that Usually, this, the depth of my knowledge of the story is goes about as far as which page I'm on, and the previous pages that I've finished are, are lost. The story is lost to me. I do know that there was an event, and then he got his powers, and then the rest of the series takes off from there. Uh, that it's terrible, but that's that's what I can tell you with certainty. I'm sure Rodney could give you a better idea <laughs> of the timeline. I'm so sorry. To what's going on here? Um, but I, I love this universe because I, I do. Now I'm going to date myself for just a minute as well. I remember the Six Million Dollar Man. I remember Incredible Hulk. Do you remember when uh, Jerry O'Connell had a short-lived TV series called My Secret Identity? I remember it. I don't remember it enough to be able to talk about it like the other ones, but I do remember it. I remember the idea of it. The concept is simply that he only has one power, and that is that he can't be hurt. And he's just sort of this kind of, you know, haphazard kid who just can't really do much very well. And on top of it, he's trying to do something, uh, you know, remarkable and yet really his big claim to fame is uh, he doesn't seem to get injured in, in any way that's substantial and um I, I was caught for a minute by that because i remember thinking you know there was an absurdity that what's this kid gonna do with this ability and i i feel with quinn he expresses that idea like okay so i can just get beat up you know and, and this way the bullies can do it and they don't get in as much trouble because it's not like i'm hospitalized or they're going to be putting you know locked up for you know damaging a human body in some horrible way but then how do i do anything more than be a punching bag and what i love is that's one of our first introductions to a hero who suggests just to quinn what are you not considering and why are you only looking at your limitations instead of all that you have to offer your thinking is right in tune with mine you're in a good place (laughs) right now that's exactly what i was thinking as i was putting this whole thing together really yeah um, what, what I love then too is that you exemplify that through the characters because later Quinn sees that there's things that he can do that that allow him to be more than some of those other heroes. He can take the punishment that they can't. Uh, mm-hmm. The weapons they're facing uh, are, are dangerous to say the least. And suddenly he has an edge that the rest of the heroes no longer, you know, basically he's equalized himself and he, he has to start recognizing that that comparison that he's been making 
and the reality of what he's actually capable of when he uses what he has and, exactly. and looks beyond those. Exactly. I mean, I think, um, again, it goes back to that thing of becoming a hero. You know, the parts I saw of the first iteration of Quinn, he was a lot closer to, let's say, Miles Morales. It's like he, he was a parkour expert and he could jump around and do a bunch of things. And you didn't have as much of the emotional stuff as what I do. It was just more of him being a traditional superhero. And uh, nothing wrong with that at all. But it was just more of, for me, there was this great opportunity in this void where I think when people say the word superhero, it's one of the reasons why I don't write a lot of them. Um, It's because I'm always looking to find where's the emotional center and what's the thing beyond the thing that's launching the character into uh, adventures. It's like um, you have some characters who have an origin and they have that origin, and they're basically replaying that same emotion over and over and over and over and over again. And they're rebooted, but it's still rebooted by that same incident or that same thing. And I wanted Quinn to be able to have multiple emotional entry points as to why he does the things that he does. As a writer, to be able to expand and tell different types of stories, I think with... um in each of the story arcs, the ones to come that I, I don't think they probably want me to talk about, but um, you know, I, I try to I try to go to a different place with each one of them that still speaks to. There's the familiarity of Quinn; he's going to react in the way that uh, you believe that he would as the, the human being that he is. But it's all motivated from a different place. It could be friendship. It could be from his parents. Uh, it could be from the community. It could be from history. It could be, you know, just a good old-fashioned adventure. But it's still under that good old-fashioned uh, adventure, something that he's emotionally connected to. And I wanted to create a, a framework that sort of didn't have to continuously regurgitate the same idea. It's like when you were talking about Billy Batson and Shazam. Um I can understand why, you know, if I if you gave me an opportunity to to do that story, I'd have that same instinct too to say, how could I do it differently? You know, what could I do different? What have they not done yet? Yeah. Um, that's always what you're looking for, I think, with Miracle Man, you know, and being able mm-hmm. to draw the parallel between Miracle Man and Shazam. I think what you were saying about Alan Moore, um, you know, destroying that idea of what uh, you know what a character like that would really do. Um, in quotes. Um, and, and it's funny because at a certain point, there are a lot less Miracle Man stories than they are Billy Batson and Shazam, Captain Marvel stories. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just wanted to, to, to make something that had legs. You know, I just wanted to make something that felt like um, you could pick it up. When, when you look at James Bond, when you look, when you look at, uh, like I said, the Hardy Boy, Nancy Drew Mysteries, you know, you could still make those stories today. You could still tell those stories today. You would have to update some of the uh, the ways, the pacing, you know, the different things you'd have to do to reflect today's uh, kid, you know, that's that has electronics and, and doesn't necessarily go outside as much as we did when we were kids. <laughs> um, but they still have enough legs that you can do interesting things with them. And I wanted Quinn to have that kind of foundation as well. Me and Rodney got involved with each other. If I remember correctly, it's been a while. 
I was working, I was already working on pre-production for Queen Credible before Rodney and I were introduced and the team of Queen Credible was officially put together. So what I was working on at the time was designing Quinn himself and any of the characters we thought were going to be very important recurring characters like Brittany, his close friend, and his parents and another superhero who comes out in the volume and is introduced there. Uh, we were doing things like trying to nail what he looked like, trying to know what haircut we, he would have, what his superhero outfit would look like, which he never wears, and how many shoes he can own, and how many times I can change his shoes throughout the throughout the series while I presume Rodney was working on the script and eventually when he finished that script uh, we were introduced and then production started in earnest. Bringing Quinn to life on the page. It was fairly straightforward on my end because again um, a lot of the heavy lifting like it was done by the writers, uh, by Rodney, and the editors, so they, they were, I assume they went back and forth and trying to decide what the, what the concept of Quinn was. So when it got to me, they had a fairly specific idea of what they wanted. Uh, when I came around, Quinn was going to be just a, you know, a young black kid with an earnest heart and a good head on his shoulders. And so we tried to really reflect that in the way he's designed. He's, and we we also tried to keep him realistic to what he was. So, you know, he he's, uh, he's a kid in high school. He's not jacked. He's not super handsome or anything. He's just a kid who can run and sometimes do flips. He, his design direction was really more flight than fight. And he was really more brains over brawn. So we tried to reflect that in him. And I think I turned out more than a dozen hairstyles for him before we landed on what he has now. And actually one aspect that I wish I really retained from pre-production was the the style of streetwear we gave him because um, not a very fashionable person. I don't really run in those spheres and I know that um, New Orleans and you know that demographic of that Quinn is in probably wears more interesting clothes than I do or I did at the time when I was a teenager and his pre-production street clothes really reflected that it was a lot more interesting a lot more quirky I don't know why I didn't I don't know why I shied away from it when we finally did production but that that's how it ended up going but I did make sure to give him different shoes all the time because weirdly that was a design note that he he never wears the same pair of shoes which is interesting for the character not so great for me because I own like two pairs of shoes and sometimes that's all I have for reference as for the other characters uh, Brittany his close friend we actually designed her fairly early on the same time Quinn was being designed because uh, she was part of the friend group that he that was envisioned for him at the start of uh, the concept of Queen Credible, and 
she was initially a little more aggressive looking. No, aggressive is the wrong term. She was a very intense character initially. So her design reflected that. So a lot of her, she had edgier hairstyles, edgier clothes. But eventually she was made to be not no less intense, but she was a lot more cerebral. She was uh, she was a, she was the thinking character of the of the duo of Quinn and Brittany. So she no less passionate, but her design reflected a little less gung ho, less I'll fight you with my own fists if I have to attitude. I hope it did. And the the superhero who is introduced, who is Glow, uh, had. Uh, she had a lot of different designs that we made for pre-production. She, but she was definitely going to be a person of color. So we made, I made different designs for maybe she was uh, Indian. Maybe she was Asian, Southeast Asian. Maybe she was also black. And eventually, I don't really remember what we landed on specifically. But the, the hood she wears that was retained from her original designs was originally a a shawl or a wrap that she could use like when she was off duty she could just wrap it around herself because her outfit is meant to be able to transition from oh I'm on duty as a hero and now I'm off duty as a civilian so that was one thing one design element we really retained as for his family they had I was lucky because when the, when time came to design them, they also had pretty specific references. Terence, his dad, was is like a less muscular Idris Elba, except if actually he's gotten a little more muscular since then because I like that was one of the things I like to draw, so that happens. And the tertiary characters usually they're designed as as they come out, which is. Not always great for me, but that's how it is. Well, I think you've created that so well because you've made one Quinn so invested in his community. And because of that, that actually means that there's going to be different motivations for him to act, Uh, whether it's the girl that he likes, who, as is always the case, ends up with the guy that no one can believe and Mm -hmm. thinks that, well, this is cute and fun and you're just not what's happening right now. <laughs> right. But you also have, uh, you know, other stories that can be great motivation. His parents, who I think are really beautiful examples of loving parents. You, you have this gorgeous exchange where they're talking about just for a moment. I mean, it's like, I feel like it, it, it could have taken place uh, over a couple of pages, but you do it so well in just a page or two. It might even be only one. I have to look back now, but where they're talking about like, what do we have now? We've got this kid who's kind of indestructible, but we don't know how long it's going to last. What sort of dangers this could create for him mm-hmm. now? How can we be parents? How can we uh, support him, you know, and do all the things he needs when we don't even know, you know, what that might look like in the future. And when that sort of relationship that cares is put at risk, it motivates Quinn, but he's also got community leaders he looks up to. So all of these different places are reasons why he's going to act. And they're also going to be motivators for how he's going to act. 
And I was curious if you could unpack a couple of those for us just to. Well, to what you just said about the parent thing, again, being a parent, I wanted his parents, you know, what do his parents think about what he does outside of him? Every so often when you see this, this scenario take place where parents discover that their kid is capable of doing a thing, they want to control it because of their care of, you know, how much they love their kid. There's still danger and he's still a kid. So how do you process the power dynamic of parent to child? And um, I think in this instance, um, the conversation that they have speaks to the limitations of what it means to be the parent of a kid who has this thing. It's like, um, do you have a bedtime now? You know, do, what if you went to the dangerous part of the neighborhood? How can I tell you not to go over to that kid's house when even if he's got a gun, you'll be okay. You know, there's nothing that, there's nothing that can happen at this point. You know, what, what's my role? And, I, and as other stories going forward, explore the conversations between the parents become just that of what's my role now. And Quinn speaks to that later on as well, too, of, you know, why I still need um, a parent. And, uh, you know, just being able to, in most comics that have kids at the center, they're very straight down the middle. Either I'm hiding from my parents what I'm doing, or if my parents become aware, somehow they're kind of like the goofy parents that are still kind of tagging along behind me to make sure what happens. Well, speaking to what I was talking about earlier when we were talking about um, this is a dangerous world. You know, this isn't an innocent world per se, and we can't ignore that. Um, so there's a fine line between how his parents feel about what he's doing the reality of that and his power. But, uh, and, and I wanted it to feel like it was a real conversation between real people thinking about a real thing in regards to their kid, because to me that reinforces uh, the, the, the stakes for what Quinn is going through. If his parents are going through that and they're thinking like adults and it's a plausible conversation that they're having, and it's a heightened plausible conversation that they're having, then um then we're able to invest in all aspects of the fantastic stuff that comes along because we've created a solid foundation for who this character is and where this character is trying to go. Um, and the same thing with the community as well. I wanted there to be, again, usually you see in uh, stories that talk about the, um, the inner city or impoverished neighborhoods or that type of thing. Um, there's a, there are polar extremes. Somebody that's either all good or it's all bad. And I wanted to split the difference down the middle to say that in human beings, we all have goodness and badness in us. You know, I've done things when I wasn't my best self that I'm really sorry about. And I've done things that I'm proud of myself about. And I try as I evolve as a person to do more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. And I think that exists uh, in every facet of life. And with those community heroes, um, when you think about the Dr. Kings or the Malcolm X's or any of those people um, who we sort of, you know, canonize and make a certain way, you know, they had flaws as well as human beings. And so when we talk about the people in the community that Quinn looks to to sort of sound like those people, um, it's not as easy as um, it's not as easy as this is a perfect person that I admire. They're going to do a perfect thing. Um, and I think for Quinn, 
we're still going through the process of learning to be a, a child, adolescent, and adult. We're still moving in that direction. So the more complicated layers as he's going through his adventure, he's also developing as a young man as well and really realizing that there's a place for idealism, but there's also a place for practical thinking and not everybody is either all good or all bad, um, that all of us have layers and, you know, um, and more stuff going on than just uh, the stuff that I need you to, to encounter in order to stay with my adventure. Um, I'm trying to... Um, create a world that, that's walking alongside the world that we actually live in, you know, and then adding some fantastic elements to it. Well, I, I think you're using some uh, great elements within the storytelling to, to sort of not only uh, show us that through the story development, but also through the visual that we get to enjoy through comics. So one of the things that, that stuck with me is right now when you were talking about how he's going to learn how to do things. It's going to take practice. And you have a great scene where he's trying parkour and he's giving it a shot and he thinks he has a strategy, but like everything, we all have the best laid plans until actually things hit the ground running or as the saying is, until the first shots fired, the first punch is thrown and then reality sets in. And he sort of recognizes the fact that this attempt that we get to experience of him in parkour isn't bad, but it's not great. And prior to, he'd had a moment or two where he could use some parkour skills to get himself out of trouble. But now when he's actually trying to do something and, and thought and planning, it doesn't work out the way he wants. And like many of his adventures later, he's going to have to either try something and fail or learn how to read a scenario to try and figure out the best way to deal with it. Because there will be options and opportunities, but only so many are going to lead to the result he's looking for. But then... Also, what I feel is great is that he's dealing with both things that are going to affect not only uh, those closest to him in age, but those he looks up to. And you do this great connection with the idea of the frustration that can occur uh, in the community. You start with his uh, encounter with uh, those around his age who he has a conflict with, and he realizes that the results of him doing something heroic is actually them being incarcerated, which he's now is like, mm -hmm. okay, well, how am I helping the problem? But he recognizes at some point later when talking with the other heroes, what they're doing is born out of frustration. And that's what we need to address. But then later you take that mm -hmm. same idea of frustration and you put it on a community leader who's trying to do the right thing, who wants to be the best example. And even those person, even that person, even those people, even those who are trying to lead are going to get frustrated they're going to feel that the ways that they're trying to lead haven't worked out, that uh, a lifetime of doing the best things has not given them the results and frustration for anyone is eventually going to lead to a breaking point. And a lot of that, you know, comes from a lot of the stuff that you see in, on television right now, you know, Black Lives Matter and the protests and all of that. Um, my entire life, I remember these conversations. You know, when I was watching Phil Donahue, my grandmother was watching and in the background, I'm listening or again, dating myself. But I remember some of the same arguments. And it's funny because um, I'm watching this uh, Lincoln documentary on CNN that uh, and they're talking about Lincoln and a lot of the stuff that the, he was talking about, the debates that they were having feel eerily reminiscent of the stuff that we're going through right now. And after generation and generation 
of trying to solve some of these problems, the problem of um, poverty in America, which never really has been dealt with, uh, the problem of race in this society, which is still problematic, um, you know, and, and other issues, the divide, the loss of a middle class and all of that kind of stuff. It's, um, it's frustrating over time. And I think oftentimes when it comes to stories for young folks, we kind of paint a very easy solution. You know, there's an easy way that we can deal with this. And like, you can just catch the bad guy and put him in jail and you're okay until he gets up. And I don't think that's the way the world works. You know, the world has, um, you do the best you can and you make inter- incremental growth in a positive direction. And sometimes you take a step back, but that doesn't mean that you don't keep fighting to make a better day. And um, I wanted that to kind of be in there too, that the heroes aren't always perfect people and that you know problems aren't always solved at the end of the hour, at the end of the issue or at the end of the story arc. You know, We may gain some semblance of um, things being better, but there's always something that we're gonna to have to battle. And the commitment, if you decide that you're gonna be the good guy, is to understand that there's never going to be an ideal. You know, there's never going to be a place where there's no conflict and that my my responsibilities have been sort of, I'm absolved of, you know, any responsibility. Um, so just those themes and those ideas and, and trying to layer them into the subtext of what's going on in Quinn's world um, as much as the practical narrative that's going forward. We're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with the following ads and then bring you right back to our conversation. I I loved everything about this book, man. I just want to say thank you you for telling a a great story, an original story, one that felt fresh and new and did so much of what you were describing, which is to take the story in a direction that isn't what's already been done, that isn't part of the expected. And because of that, there are so many authentic moments that I absolutely treasured. I, I would encourage anyone to consider that when they get the chance to read it. And I, I'd love to hear their thoughts as well, because it was something that it's like striking a bell <laughs> or like striking, you know, just with that perfect tone. You just hear it afterwards and you can't stop hearing it. I can't stop seeing the pictures and reading the words and remembering them as I'm talking with you right now. It was really a wonderful time. Thank you very much. I hope going forward we're able to continue on in the same tradition. Um, I know certainly, you know, as a writer yourself, you know, you get to a place where you feel this responsibility, not just to tell the best story that you can tell, but, you know, the, the, the protagonist stuff that's inside of you that wants to try to not necessarily just make the world a better place, but to do something that's positive, that's good, that resonates. The same way we were talking about Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill and mm. the stuff that the way Alan Moore affected us, you know, I, 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 my hope is that the, the, the wonderful things that you've said about uh, Quinn, that that resonates for kids, young people, anyone who's reading the book, but primarily young folks who feel like they have someone that is reflective of the world that they live in. I, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say. I'm looking forward to anyone who's, who's going to come in because I have a feeling that they're going to be echoing a lot of what I was describing. And I'm looking forward so. to, to you experiencing that. I, I also know that you suggested possibly 
that those who could be listening and, and arrange for, for me to actually get in contact with you might not love it if you suggested what future stories might be out there for Quinn. Yes. If, yes. if there is any way that we can address that without getting A, you in trouble and B, also maybe <sighs> sort of suggesting that there is more for Quinn to take on. His, his story, as you described with almost all heroes, this is as it's been put, a never-ending battle. Once you join the fight, once you decide to commit, it, there is no ideal, which means you'll never stop doing it. But just because this book comes to a close doesn't mean that Quinn's story is ending. What what else does he have to experience, challenge? What What's coming well, his way that we can... There's a second get? story arc that's coming out in um, July. I think the, they've already sort of uh, listed it out there. That's um, actually done. And... Um, you know, if you can, if you want to see that artwork again, Selena's great artwork. Um, I don't think is, we had the recording going before. So, yeah, okay. let's put that up. This is the great cover. I don't know if you can see it. But, I can. Um, <laughs> okay. The hands touching Quinn. Um, yeah. It speaks to, um, we get into a little bit of uh, authentic New Orleans history and um, another connector to the community in a way. But I think it speaks to Quinn's evolution as a person and as a superhero and as a character overall. Um, uh, he begins to kind of, uh, he, to get a little confidence, a little wind under, under his sails. And um, we expand his world a little bit. Um, I think along with whoever the antagonist is that he's battling, that antagonist has to reflect the evolution of Quinn, you know, like for example, if we were talking about Batman, uh, the Joker is sort of, you know, the big bad to the Batman. He reflects him perfectly, but along that, uh, that ladder getting to Joker, you've got, um, the Riddler and Clayface and a bunch of other, uh, other, uh, bad guys who are great bad guys, but they're not the Joker. You know, right. they're, they're, they're not the joke. So <laughs> like they say when bad guys want to scare themselves, they tell Joker stories. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the Joker's bad enough, you know, the polar opposite of who Batman is. Now, all of those other guys are great. You know, Bane can break your back and, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, but that's sort of the, the journey and the path that Quinn is on. And I always wanted the um, whoever the, the antagonist is, the tests continue to get. The, the trial gets harder and harder and harder. He has to pour more stuff out of himself and the bonds of testing his family bonds and his friendships and his relationships, they get tested more and more and more um, so that deeper, a deeper sense of uh, the principles that are around the character can begin to sort of bleed through. And um, we can learn more about Quinn and become more hopefully emotionally connected to him and what he wants because he's being pushed further. You know, we're starting at a place of bullies in the neighborhood. Uh, we're starting at a place of, do I belong? Um, you know, those types of things. Now that I've decided I do belong, um, what happens once I get in and now I'm tested to a place where I'm pushed to the brink, do I wanna quit? This was harder than the last time. You know, I remember when we played basketball in high school, there were games against some teams we knew we were going to win. 
And just because of the nature of the school that we were playing just didn't have those players. And then there would be like city teams that we would play that were terrifying that we knew <laughs> where we were that to them, you know, and right. we knew that we were probably walking out with a loss. Um, do you quit playing the game? You know, do you quit trying? Do you quit um, giving your best effort because you're playing against insurmountable odds? So I think the thing for me is to continuously um, turn heat up and um, on Quinn and uh, see whether or not he can take it. And I think in the second story arc and the third story arc, um, you know, th there's a there's a simple math of his emotional development meeting his the thing that he does the action the verb of the story and um then the psychological slash emotional development of quinn as a character and a person you can't move those things so much so that through every arc he's a completely different person but incrementally if you get to a place where um you see his growth and um that's still reflective of the world that the demo for uh, the primary demo for who this book is intended for. That's sort of the goal to find something different every time. And it's nerve wracking when you're sitting in this chair. Of, okay. <laughs> what can I do differently? What can I... It's funny. There's another book that um, uh, I write, Philadelphia, uh, uh, and it's a mature book. Kids don't, don't read that book. Don't read it. And, I'm familiar with what you're talking about. Kids. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't read that kids. Yeah. I'm just making it an example of a thing right now. And um, the artists on that book, Jason, Sean Alexander, we're just entering into the third arc of that book. And um, he just posted something on Twitter where he said he was, he firmly believed that where can we go now? We've had two good story arcs. There's no way this third one could be good. And hopefully the fans will be forgiving for what we're about to to this meal we're about to serve him. And fortunately, when he read the story for the third arc, he was very pleased. And I sort of feel that way about Quinn. It's like, okay, I did a neighborhood story, you know, the second arc of story, I did that story. Okay, where do I go next? Because it's not just so much um, where you go, it's how does where you're going affect Quinn and evolve the character a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, just incrementally, because you don't want to make the jump so big that now he's a different person, mm -hmm. but enough to where I see some growth, I see something that's different, and you're not just regurgitating the same idea again and again and again. So it's a challenge, but to where we started, you know, that challenge hopefully makes me a better writer, um, mm -hmm. and it makes Quinn a more interesting character. Um, and yeah, that, that's always the goal. I mean, I don't think anybody writes comics to get rich. Um, so for me, it's the love that we talked about early with that box with my mother in the public library and wanting to contribute to that so that maybe, uh, one day a couple of guys are uh, on a zoom call like this right now talking about Quinn and say, man, I love that book, and my kid loves that book, and blah, blah, blah. That's enough for me. I always loved the idea that was expressed when I was going through writing classes or workshops. There would be that teacher that would remind why it was we're even doing this. And for so much of it, it's about what got us into it. But then it's about why at some point do you continue? And someone at some point with writing inspired us to pick up the pen, sit down at the keyboard. 
And at some point we want to, in ourselves, write something that says, I heard you, I was listening. And, and this is what your writing did for me. And this is what I want my writing to do now in response to that, not only to what you guys showed me and taught me, uh, to all the men and women who did things with writing that now you know, we when, want to experience. When the comics community, you know, I love the fans and I love the, you know, people who read the book, but when other writers and other creatives, you know, not only praise your work, but they get into it too. Um, it makes you feel like you are part of a pantheon of creatives that, um, you know, that we're in this big club because we all, emotionally and psychologically have this thing that we can relate to in regards to um, how difficult this can be, how lonely this can be, how the process of going into a room and uh, hopefully opening up a vein and pouring it on the page and um, without any guarantee of how it's going to be received. Um, you know, that's the, it takes a little bit of courage to be able to do that again and again and again and again and again. And, again. and But that's sort of what this is. And, um, you know, to me, it's a metaphor for Quinn's development as well. You know, that the better he gets, the stronger he gets, even in the face of sometimes failing, um, he still gets up and he tries again. And I think for those people who decide, you know, my therapist said to me once that, uh, you know, everybody's flawed, but there are two types of people that walk with that. There's the one group of folks who sort of define their flaws and, um, that's an aspect of how they see themselves as their flaw. They defend it. And then they're the people who understand that they're flaws and they're working on being better people. You know, they're working to walk with their flaw and not necessarily allow it to define them. Um, I purposefully put Quinn in that position to where he's got to overcome his fears. He's aware that he's afraid, but he still faces the danger nonetheless. You know, oftentimes with heroes, they don't admit that they're afraid. They don't admit that um, uh, their insecurities, you know, they just go into the fight and they just keep fighting. And to me, the man without fear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The man without fear. And, and so, you know, uh, that's that's great. And I think certainly for that period of time when we were going through the process of those heroes and coming through the 60s and the 70s, you know, that was perfectly fine. But I think when we get into how stories are told now and sort of those stories being reflective of sort of almost even advertisements for movies and TV shows. Um, there's a different type of storytelling that's a little bit more grounded, you know, less fantastical, certainly in the way the Marvel universe manifests itself to where it's almost, it walks right along with real life. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's the perfect setting for telling stories that are a little bit more emotional, a little bit more grounded, a little bit more connected to the trials and tribulations as people that we go through. So Quinn is most assuredly a better person than I am. His capacity for empathy and his desire to to be generally helpful and and to insert himself into situations to that so that he can help far outstrips mine. Uh, I uh, personally I enjoy darker stories and perhaps protagonists who are a little more. Uh, morally gray, so to speak. But yeah, work, I enjoy working on Quinn because sometimes it's just nice to have an uncomplicated character who's just, you know, he's a, he's a good guy. He does 
He he does good things. He just wants to help everyone and their dog. And it's nice to have nice feelings sometimes. So it's very enjoyable to work on his story. Well, I'm also going to point out that I think that the recognition you're already getting, uh, Comics Beat saying it's a well-rounded work, complex characterizations, a good story that understands these aspects aren't separate from the political and social ones, but intertwined. And from Black Nerd Problem saying the creative team has poured their heart and soul, which I think answers the question about the idea of, you know, pouring the blood on the page and, and how much of that you're giving that others are, are recognizing. So I think the early response is great. I'm looking forward to, to hearing from others. And I, I, I love the fact that there's a, a great history that, that you're you know, connecting with, not only from your own experiences, from your own comic book experiences, but also from your own understanding of these characters. I'm a little, you know, just wondering what this conversation would have been like if we could have kept Selena in and, and you know, uh, I encouraged uh, whatever processes it took for her to, yeah, to, to bring her on the page. Yeah. I'm going to hopefully follow up with her and if I can blend these two together in some way, if not, it might be a two-parter. But um, man, Rodney, it, so when we started, this is what I was saying I absolutely love. I get the chance to talk with another writer. Uh, I get the chance to listen to an artist describe their process. I get to ask the questions that anybody else who's reading might have asked, but now they've already got the answers. And when they go in to read this book, they can either listen before and read it or listen afterwards and gain those insights. And also, hopefully, with what you suggested, we can look forward to who is it Quinn's going to grow into next? What part of his personalities and what challenges are he going to face that are going to allow him to experience that inter- incremental growth we're all trying to achieve in ourselves? And also that he's going to need, because you pointed out at the beginning, you know, the idea of the balance that allows him to become better with his powers, the control and the understanding that is part of his maturity and improvement that's going to also make him a better superhero. It sounds like he's going to be tested and challenged in all the ways he needs to grow and become more. And um, I think you've set us up well for a lot of expectation come this summer. And uh, <laughs> and the stories are going to follow. Here's my my last sort of like uh, thing that I always like to consider is that I'm never as smart as I think I am. Just like, you know, when I'm a teenager and I think I'm getting away with something, I'm never as cute as I think I am. I'm always actually, you know, making a mistake. And I'm well aware of the fact that in any conversation, there's a question I wanted to ask and I didn't or that someone who's getting interviewed to talk about their process is like, man, if they ask this question, I've got the answer. I'm ready. And I always want to consider if I didn't get that question, if I didn't ask you that question, and there's something you would love for me and anyone else to know about this story, about what you were doing with it or anything else. I I could have asked that you were like, man, I've had this answer ready. If just someone would ask me the question (laughs) and I'd love to consider that I didn't ask that question. No, you pretty much covered everything. I mean, oh, wow. I think um, I was more curious to what you're going to ask Selena because we never really get an opportunity to talk talk, you know, because she's in the Philippines too and the time difference and beyond just, uh, you know, how artists and writers work, you know. Um, I'd love to be able to gain some of her insights and I loved where she was going when she was talking about how she got, you know, the gig to come on and do Quinn and how she sees the world. I'm more really interested in that. I mean, I think you've done a fine job as far as, uh, you know, what I do, trying to put this story together and create this world. But um, I'm really interested in her stuff. 
no questions, just the hi guys, just just have just enjoy the story. Right? Like I said, it's it's nice to have nice feelings sometimes, especially nowadays. And I believe that Quinn and Quinn Credible have something good to say with regards to the the larger climate of life as it is now. And if nothing else, it's it's a nice story about a nice kid who who just wants the best for everyone. And sometimes lasers come out of people. Thanks. You know, Rodney, equally beautiful has been our conversation. I, I don't want to just follow up with you about Queen Credible. If you have any other projects that you would love to sit down and talk shop with me about, whether it's uh, something new launching, something coming to an end, or man, you, you've just got some writer stuff in your brain that you're like, hey, Seth, I, I could fill up. I could fill up a lot of time if you just want to sit down and jam because that this may, was a that, lot of fun. Uh, likewise, that may come. It's a lot of stuff coming over the next few months. So you will probably have hear me hitting you up, knocking on your door, saying, hey, man, remember you said you wanted to talk? Here we go. I, I'm ready. Let's get it on the calendar. Let's have the next conversation. Rodney, if I can just say it again, man, thank you. Uh, this has been a great night. I'm going to go and do some writing, and I'm inspired because of our conversation, man. Cool, brother. Likewise. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. You have a great evening. All right. You take it easy. All right. Thank you again. Bye. Bye now. And that brings us to the end of episode number 89 of Storytelling with Seth. I would like to thank my guests, Rodney and Selena, for taking the time to answer my questions. And not only to Rodney for powering through after we lost Selena, but to Selena for taking the time to record all those great answers that I could include and hopefully splice together for you in a way that made this interview as enjoyable for you as it was for me. Now, please note that in the excitement, I didn't get the opportunity to have both Rodney and Selena share their social media contact information with me through that recording. However, I've done my best to include all of it in the liner notes. I know they would love to hear that you've read Quinn Credible and any comments you have to share. And if there's any way I can be a part of making sure they know everything you have to say, don't hesitate to reach out and contact me. I'm on Twitter as one more singleton, Instagram as Seth the Writer, or just type my name, Seth Singleton, and the word story into your favorite search engine. And wherever you find me, send me a message. I'd love to hear it, talk with you, and if it's possible, help you find a way to get a story you know belongs on Storytelling with Seth as soon as possible and in the best way we can make it happen. This has been episode number 89. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. I can't wait for the next opportunity to share another story with you.